Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Luke 24, 13-35 English Standard Version On the road to Emmaus That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they didn't find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to where they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Thank you so much for joining us for this great Easter Sunday service. Hi, my name is Howard. It's my privilege to lead the team here at Westminster Chapel. And it's a joy to be able to share a few words with you today all about Easter. One of my favourite monuments in London is the Bomber Command Memorial in Green Park. A symbolic crew of seven larger than life brave men. One of the members of the crew, though, is distraught, downcast, discouraged. I imagine him thinking, what is there in this world that death ultimately won't destroy? The other, possibly the captain, 
is there at the front with his hand to his brow, looking out with hope beyond the horizon. I wonder today, which one are you? You see, embracing the real meaning of Easter will enable you to put your hand to your brow, to to look out with hope beyond the horizon of this world to an infinitely greener and more pleasant land, to a world without sickness, suffering, viruses and even death. We had hoped. That is the first of three three word phrases I want to talk with you about from this first century biographical account of Jesus. The two disciples walking from Jerusalem on the road to Emmaus were downcast. They had sadness written all over their faces. And who couldn't identify with them after the year that we've we've all had? We had Hope that we would avoid much death and suffering, but already 130,000 precious people in the UK alone have lost their lives. We had hoped that we would spend Christmas together with our wider families, but instead we were in lockdown again. Now that's an important loss of hope, but it's not quite the context here. Now context matters. If you were to come into our family home, you would hear my wife and I talking, asking each other, did our four-year-old son, did he give you the finger? Now, don't worry, our young boy is not swearing at us. It's just that once when he got his bedtime milk back and it was just the right temperature with a sense of approval and gratitude, he gave gave us the finger like that. And now it's stuck. It's now a pattern. We go, oh, did you get the finger this time? Like that. It's a good thing. You see, context matters. And the context here is that these disciples were saying they had hoped that Jesus would be the one to redeem Israel. They had hoped that he would come to bring liberation from oppressive Roman occupation. But death had destroyed all of that. That's death's MO, by the way. It's the ultimate obstacle to human fulfillment. The Russian Nobel Prize winning author Tolstoy, who had fame, money and success, knew this. He said that there's not one day in his life where he doesn't feel haunted by death. I could give no reasonable meaning to any single action or to my whole life, he wrote. I was once surprised that I could have avoided understanding this from the very beginning. Sooner or later, my affairs, whatever they may be, will be forgotten and I shall not exist. Then why go on making any effort? How can man fail to see this? And how go on living? That is what is surprising. Are you in denial about death? Or are you distressed by its destructiveness? The reason why these disciples should, could have had hope, was walking right beside them, but they were kept from seeing. What blinded them? The intensity of their negative emotions, well, quite possibly. Their doubt and scepticism over the women's testimony of the empty tomb and this angelic declaration that Jesus had risen, verses 22 and 23. Yes, I think quite probably. I remember all of the Christian testimonies. I think back to those testimonies that I dismissed because I thought secretly they were from people who were naive or deceived or who were just weak people in need of religion's crutch. How arrogant I was to think that. 
in a not dissimilar way to these men who are culturally sexist, dismissive of what these women had to say. I wonder whose testimony you might be dismissing. Another, perhaps the most important reason why these disciples were blinded from seeing Jesus was because they had a small understanding, a small view of Jesus. He was just a prophet, verse 19. Yes, a man mighty in word and deed, but just a prophet. I've lost count of the number of times that people have told me Jesus is just a legendary figure or Jesus is just a good moral teacher. But these preconceived ideas about Jesus, you could even call them prejudices about him, will stop you from seeing and enjoying who Jesus really is. You see, something happened 2,000 years ago that everyone has got to make sense of. Christianity exploded on the scene from somewhere. People don't just willingly die for someone they believe in, believing that he's conquered death from nowhere. Add to that, extraordinary, massive changes took place almost overnight that need an explanation. You get things like the ancient Passover meal celebrated by Jews for centuries gets transformed by Christ into communion for which followers of Jesus will be accused of cannibalism. And in the time eternal practice, the Friday, Saturday, Jewish Sunday, Sabbath gets transformed into an Easter Sunday celebration. Luke chapter 24 is designed to give you a bigger, 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 bigger vision of Jesus. Let me give you four points. The first point is that Jesus is more than a prophet. He is unmistakably murdered and then presents himself so convincingly alive to his followers that they'll die for him. And he does that having predicted that that is what would happen. He must be God. The second thing is that Jesus is nearer to you now than you know. Just like with these disciples, he's right beside you if you could know his presence. The third thing is that Jesus is more caring than you're comprehending. He so cares about the discouragement that these disciples are going through that he comes alongside and he asks them questions to help them process and make progress. God cares for you. Number four is that Jesus, God, is far cooler and less of a killjoy than you're giving him credit for. Look at verse 18. Cleopas asks this question to Jesus, who is God? Where were you when all of this happened? Now, Jesus is the only person who knows from the inside out exactly what has happened. And yet I imagine him smiling inside. And then it says, he simply says this. What things? How does Jesus resurrect these discouraged disciples' hope? He comes alongside them. He asks them compassionate questions. But then he challenges them. He names the problem foolishness. They should have seen what was coming in the scriptures. And that takes us to our second three word statement. All the scriptures. Many people today claim to know all about Jesus or to have dismissed the claims about Jesus without actually having read the Bible, the main source of information about him. Now, I should know because I was one of them. 
arrogantly using my lawyer skills to make arguments against Christianity with tragically very little understanding of the evidence. I wonder if you're guilty of doing that. Or maybe you're more like these disciples who had read the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, but they didn't really know them. They had a superficial understanding of them. It's a little bit like reading Professor C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia and only seeing them as a children's story and missing the deeper Christian allegory that Aslan, for example, is Jesus. The Bible is alive, but it will be dead to you if you remain deaf to Jesus. But if you open your ears to Jesus speaking through the Holy Spirit as he comes alongside you, the Bible will come alive to you just as it did for these disciples. Verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Note this word all, all, all of the 66 books of the Bible are about Jesus. All of them, right from the beginning to the very end, despite its diversity, despite being written in three languages, despite being written over 1,500 years by all sorts of different people that God used from farmers to kings, it is all about Jesus. Even the first 39 books of the Bible, which were written before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, are still about him. Now, how is that possible? Well, the point is, it's not humanly possible. It's only possible for God to carry that out, to reveal himself in such a miraculous way. The question is, though, is it true, this claim that all the scriptures are about Jesus? Well, to answer that, let's imagine together what Jesus might have said to these disciples as we look at some of the themes from people to objects to animals and to concepts, beginning with Moses, because that's where Jesus began. Jesus is a greater Moses, a boy similarly saved from death at a young age who then grows up to lead his people out of slavery and through the, the Red Sea of death and into the promised land. Is all of that a coincidence? I don't think so. Or Jesus could have talked about objects like the stone that was not cut from human hands talked about in the 6th century BC book of Daniel. This born of a virgin stone is predicted to destroy the Roman Empire. And we have good historical evidence that this is what happened, that Rome's authority was massively, catastrophically weakened by the witness of Christian martyrs who showed that there was a higher authority than Rome, that they were living for a greater loyalty to a kingdom, not of this world. They were defiant in the face of death. They exposed the impotence of Roman power. It couldn't control them, keep them in order. It showed really also the hubris of the Roman peace. What an empty peace, peace at bloodshed and the arbitrariness of Roman justice, not giving them a fair trial. Jesus destroys the Roman Empire by love. 
Or perhaps Jesus could have talked about animals, maybe the Passover lambs that were sacrificed by the Israelites in Egypt. And the blood of these animals was put over the door frames of their homes so that God's just judgment would pass over them. Jesus is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when you have faith in him, when you trust in him, his blood comes on you. So God's judgment passes over you and onto Christ at the cross so that the penalty for sin, death, is paid on your behalf. Then there are concepts. These disciples say in verse 22 that this is all happening on the third day, but they don't understand the significance of this important phrase that throughout the scripture, it means suffering will happen, but glory will follow. Suffering first, glory second. Genesis chapter 22, it's on the third day that God provides a ram, a substitute to save Isaac from being sacrificed, foreshadowing Jesus's substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. Genesis chapter 40, it's on the third day that Joseph in prison predicts that Pharaoh's cupbearer will be restored, lifted up back into the presence of the king. Genesis chapter 42, it's on the third day that Joseph himself releases his own brothers from prison and they get a liberation beyond their imagination. It's not just physical freedom, it's spiritual freedom freedom as they're set free from guilt over selling their own brother into slavery. And in Exodus chapter 19, it's on the third day that God promises to come down from Mount Sinai in front of all the people to display his glory. Joshua chapter 1, it's on the third day that people cross over the River Jordan and enter into the promised land. Joshua chapter 2, it's on the third day that the spies are now safe and don't have to continue in fearful hiding. Esther chapter 5 is on the third day that the queen Esther begins her plan to restore, rescue her people and to bring about the comeuppance of their enemy, Haman. Hosea chapter 6 verse 2, by this point in biblical history, this third day narrative has become so common that the prophet Hosea is able to say on the third day he will restore us and we will live in his presence. In the New Testament, Matthew chapter 12, Jesus likens himself to Jonah. He's basically saying, I am a true and greater Jonah. Jonah was in the grave, in the belly of the big fish for three days. And on the third day, he was miraculously vomited out and goes to share the good news of God's mercy with the rebellious people of Nineveh. And they repent and there's a revival. Is all of this a coincidence? Absolutely not. God's word proves itself to be miraculously, supernaturally true. What was the impact then of this heavenly Bible study? Well, that takes us to our final point, our third point. Hearts burn within. First, they want Jesus to stay with them. Jesus and the Bible should always leave you wanting more. Second, they return to Jerusalem with great joy immediately. Seven mile journey, even though the day has already been spent. What a transformation. They left Jerusalem a long, sad walk. They return with a happy, joy-filled jog. What a metaphor for what can happen in your life when this hope takes up residence inside you. And third, they praise. They return to these 
other Christians, the disciples in Jerusalem, and they declare he is risen indeed. If the fire of your heart has grown dim, let Jesus ignite it, reignite it today, right now. Let him breathe hope into your heart. You don't have to die like Isaac. Like the cupbearer, you can be lifted up. Like Joseph's brothers, you can be set free from prison and a prison of guilt for all the wrong things you've said, thought and done and all the good things you should have done, but you never get did. Like the Israelites, you can experience God coming down in glory from the Mount of Crucifixion out through the empty tomb to take you by the hand and walk you into his promised land. Joy forever. Wow. Like the spies, you don't have to hide anymore or live in fear like those under Xerxes who are about to be killed. No, you can be rescued even though you've done nothing to save yourself. It's all been done by a true and better Queen Esther. Hallelujah. Jesus is alive. Sin's penalty has been paid. Death, the great enemy, has been defeated. And for all those who trust in Jesus, there is now no condemnation for those who believe. And more than that, it's not just that. It's that Jesus is the first fruit of new creation. That what happened to his glorified body is going to happen to the entire cosmos. All the evil and bad stuff exercised and all the good stuff supersized. Goodbye, depression and discouragement, <laughs> peace and joy. There is a hope that death cannot, cannot destroy. And it can be yours by saying yes to Jesus. Yes to him right now by believing upon him, by trusting him and inviting him to open your spiritual eyes and confessing, seeking forgiveness for all the small views that you've had about Jesus and letting him lift your gaze. That you can put your hand to your brow and you can look out beyond the horizons of this world to the new heavens and earth, the glorious new heavens and earth that are coming for all those who believe. There is hope. Let Jesus breathe hope into your heart right now. Lord, I pray for those who are watching. I thank you for them. And I ask right now you'd bring to life supernatural, otherworldly hope that nothing in this world can crush into every person watching. They would have an increase of hope. They would experience this hope for the first time as they trust in you. They would experience more hope as they trust in you again, as they believe in you for new and better days are ahead to come for the people of God. Lord, come amongst us, we pray. Resurrect our hope, resurrect our faith, resurrect our confidence and help us to praise and celebrate and honour you with our lives, declaring that he is risen indeed. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.